the Gospel according to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. We'll finish this next, uh, this week and next week. We'll wrap up the first major section of Isaiah, which will be in chapter 39. So we'll look at 38 and 39 next week. And then we'll jump into our Advent series called Christ in the Carols. We love to sing Christmas carols. We've chosen five songs. We'll look at those five songs, of course, through the Word of God, how those songs were shaped by the Word of God as we uh, look at the Advent season for the month of November uh, into December, finishing up on Christmas Eve, of course, with the candle, Christ candle on Christmas Eve. So that's where we're headed. But meanwhile, turn with me to Isaiah 37 is where we find ourselves this morning. Um, chapter 8, verse 38. Isaiah chapter 37, verses 8 through verses 38, the end of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 37, verses 8 through 38. So if you remember, God in his sovereignty has chosen to use the Assyrian army, the Assyrian empire, to chastise his people for their rebellion, their, 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 their covenant-breaking sin. And he sent that army down, and the army, the Assyrian army in 721 B.C., uh, decimated the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel, capturing their city, their capital of Samaria. That was 721. Now we're out 20 years later. Uh, they're at the door of Jerusalem, the two southern uh, uh, tribes of Israel called Judah. They're at the door of their capital city, which is Jerusalem. It is now around 701, 702 uh, B.C. The king is Hezekiah. Uh, he is now the king. He brought a revival to the town, to the to Jerusalem. But like his father Ahaz, he ran to in other nations to find refuge, protection, and shelter. If you remember, his father Ahaz ran to um, uh, ran to the actually the Assyrian Empire to give him protection. And now we have Hezekiah who went south to Egypt um, to, to to find help. To, to, rather than run to God, they they ran to Egypt. To be delivered from their enemy, which was the Assyrian Empire, who's now at the door of Jerusalem. So Hezekiah is the king. The Assyrian Empire is at the door, frame, door of Jerusalem, ready to conquer her. And it's around 702, 701 B.C. Now, as we get into these chapters, I mentioned it last week. You have to realize that we're going from mainly poetic literature, parallelism, what they call uh, chiastic uh, lines, to prose, to, to narrative. So... What we're looking at now in chapter 37, 38, and 39 is what Isaiah has been already telling us earlier from chapter 28 on. He's saying it poetically, and now what he's doing, he's explaining, looking back, and explaining what has happened. He's given us narrative, he's given us historical narrative, what's going on, what God was doing during those times in redemption history. So, very important to see now we're going to a narrative. And God is now showing us through Isaiah what he's been previously and poetically saying since chapter 28. Jerusalem is under siege, the Assyrian army is at the door, and we learn during those chapters from 28 till now, we've learned that Judah has rejected the word of the Lord. They're being chastised for rejecting the word of the Lord. They're partying, man. They're having fun. They're drinking their wine. They're, and they're, not, they're, they're having fun rather than mourning as they should because of their sin. They have performed these church rituals coming into the temple, but the Bible tells us that their heart was far from God. And we also know that they sent money and treasures down to Egypt, from Judah down to Egypt, in order to buy their protection. But we've seen that even in the midst of their sin, even in the midst of their rebellion and their faithlessness and fear, Isaiah tells us that God is going to show his people mercy and grace. He's going to be gracious to them. That's why we call this series the gospel according to Isaiah. God is gracious to sinners. That's what the gospel is all about. We learn that God is going to fight for them. God's going to restore remnant to them. Uh, remnant of them. God is going to pour out his spirit upon them, we've learned. They're going to live in peace and security, and they, God's going to establish a king who will reign in righteousness, we learn in chapter 32. That king we know is Jesus, who extends grace and mercy and kindness through the cross to God's people by faith in him. We've learned that already. And what we'll see now as we jump into our text and chapter 37, 8 through following, you know, to the end, is four things as God vindicates his honor. We're going to see a royal message that was sent from Sennacherib, Sennacherib to Hezekiah. We'll see the, re, the request of Hezekiah as he gets this message. And then we'll see God's response that wraps up this chapter. Okay, so that's it. The royal message, the request, and the response of God. So that's where we're going as we jump into our text. No, 
Let me read to you chapter, uh, let me just read to you verses 8 through 13 uh, of Isaiah, chapter 37, 8 through 13, we'll be looking at together. So hear the word of the Lord, the inspired, infallible, authoritative word from God to his people. Verse 8. The Rapshika returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning, this is a tough one, Taraka, king of Cush, or, or Ethiopia, depending on your translation, and he has set out to fight against you. So the king hears he's going to fight against you. When he heard it, Sennacherib, when he heard it, he sent messengers back to Jerusalem to Hezekiah, saying to him, verse 10, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, verse 11, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezav, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city Seraphravim, and the king of Hena, or the king of Iva, Eva? May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. We see this mocking continue. Last week we learned that Sennacherib had fortified the cities. He had marched into Jerusalem and conquered some of the cities near Jerusalem. And at that point, he's in Lipkush, or what do they call that? Um, Lachish, Lachish, that's really the way you're supposed to say it, Lachish. He's in Lachish, and he sends uh, this Rapshika. He is, remember, if you remember from last week, uh, two weeks ago, it was a title. It probably means cupbearer. And he sends this most devoted person to Sennacherib, the king, and sends him to Jerusalem to see Hezekiah, to bring Hezekiah a message. Remember from two weeks ago also, they meet him at the water supply. All right? So you have the enemy of Israel, the enemy of Judah, the enemy of Jerusalem, there in Jerusalem at the water supply with a great army, kind of intimidating. Rabshakeh then meets at the water pool King Hezekiah's top officials. We learned this two weeks ago. And he begins his threats. We saw that in chapter 36. We see, we see Rapshka threatening and using his psychological warfare, trying to get inside the heads of God's people. He's, he mocks them. Remember that? He deceives them. He, he brags on them. He has mixed truths and spins and intimidation. All the while, what, what, what Rapshka is doing the Assyrian army is doing is trying to intimidate God's people for the purpose of them not trusting God. For the purpose of Judah to not trust their God. And we said a couple of weeks ago that this narrative is really a battle about two kings. The king of Assyria and the king of kings. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who sent Rapshakeh as his delegate, and the Lord king, reigning ruler of the universe. And Lapshika, the Rapshika, the, 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 uh, the king of uh, 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 spokesman, in a brazen attempt, as we remember, starts mocking the living God. Not only is he uh, uh, attacking and mocking and, 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 and going after the people, but he starts to mock the living God. We saw that as we ended two weeks ago. It, it was, he, I mean, he went so far to say that your God, the God of Jerusalem, the God of Judah, the God of creation is no longer on your side. They're actually on our side because we're destroying everybody. God has left the scene, left your side, and now he's fighting against you. Mocking the living God. Chapter 36, verse 14 says that God will not and cannot deliver you. Can you imagine that? The enemy telling God's people, God will not, he cannot deliver you. And when everything looked bleak, when Israel, excuse me, when Judah is under siege, it did not look well. Hezekiah is told what's going on, what's about to happen. And what does he do? Chapter 37, he tears his robes and puts on sackcloth. Not only a sign of mourning, a sign of contrition, a sign of repentance and humiliation, and he hears the news of what's going on, and he goes into the temple of the Lord, seeking the face of God, and sends a delegate to the prophet Isaiah. And this delegate had priests involved. So you have the priest and the prophet and the king all seeking the face 
of God. And God speaks, chapter 37, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, speaking through his prophet, thus says the Lord, don't be afraid. I know Rapshika is there. He's timid, intimidating and mocking me. Don't be afraid. Because of the words you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, God says, I will put a spirit in him. He'll hear a rumor. He'll return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And now the text picks up in verse 8. Rapshika has finished mocking and ridiculing and intimidating God's people and God himself. And for whatever reason, it says in verse 8 that he went and sought the king. So they leave the pool gate. They leave the pool, the water supply. And they go and look for King Sennacherib, who is no longer in Lachish, but moved to Libna. Now, just so you know, those are two cities in Judah, right near Jerusalem, south, it would be southwest, and one's north from the other, but they're, they're close by. There are cities that were there to try to buffet and protect Jerusalem. So he's already taken down one of them, and now he's gone off to fight another city. He's in Libna, and that's where he finds them. So, but while he's there, these rumors are flying. And the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib, hears all these rumors going on. And, and, and as these rumors are going on, you can see four times the word heard is mentioned. The king heard, the king heard, he heard it, you have heard it. So, so he's hearing these rumors while he's in these cities. And, and, and now he's like, we have a problem. Not only, not only is, is, is uh, you know, am I hearing all these rumors, but look what it says in verse, verse uh, 9. There's a king that's coming after the Assyrian army. So see if I can picture this for you. You have Judah... Egypt, and Assyria. Kind of serious down here. Assyria hears that Egypt is coming to get them. And here's Judah. And what they don't want to do is be sandwiched in between. You got Egypt coming after the Assyrians, and then Judah still in a place of war against them. So when he hears this is going on, he's like, oh no, I'm in a bad position here. Things are not good. I could lose the battle. I could get sandwiched in between Judah and Egypt. And the Assyrian commander and the Assyrian army and the Assyrian king says, you know what, I got an idea. Let's send a message to Hezekiah. Let's keep him as intimidated and fearful as we possibly can. Even though we have to withdraw, let's just, let's just keep God's people in fear and, and, and not moving. And just keep them where we are and we'll come back. I'm sure they were looking to come back. And he says to them, and the message is rather clear. Look at uh, verse 10. God is deceiving you. God is the deceiver. He is deceiving you into think that you can actually be delivered from us. Not only is God deceiving you with his promises, I can prove it. Verse 11, when the word behold, he's speaking, you know, that everyone knows what's going on. So behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria, everyone knows what the king of Assyria has done. Everyone knows that he has destroyed all the other nations, all the other kings, all the other idols, the gods, small g's of that nation in which they were trusting in. Everyone knows that. And therefore, we're going to destroy you too and your God. And he gives two sets, verse 12, verse 13, two sets of cities. The first one is um, up by Nineveh, by the Tigris and the Euphrates. And look what it says. My father's destroyed them. He's going back. He's just saying, look, we have conquered them. I think it was like 50 years ago. And then the second set of cities that they have destroyed, verse 13, is a little bit more recent and a little bit more closer. In other words, we did this over here. You know what? We did this over here. Do you really think? Do you really think you can call on your God who's deceiving you and stop us? That's the argument. That, that's the, that, that's the, the convincing that Hezekiah, excuse me, that Sennacherib wants to tell Hezekiah. And let's be honest, Judah is a small cities. They're small cities, a small nation. <laughs> the argument, like, who alone can save you? The argument is rather convincing. We've destroyed all these nations, all these nations, all these gods, all these places, like, Really? You really think you could beat us? True. Apart from the living God. Apart from the living God. 
In other words, how can Hezekiah be so blind and so stupid and put up a fight? It's unavoidable. We're going to take the city. You might as well just give up. Just surrender. What God's enemy is doing to God's people and saying about God, is saying about God, is questioning the reliability and the credibility of the promises of God. Denying the reality and the reliability and credibility of what God is able to do. That's the way the enemy works. Really? Do you really think? Blasphemous statements, calling God a liar, a deceiver. Even though God has spoken through the prophet, we see that in this verse, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. That's the promise of God. That's the hope of Hezekiah. God has spoken through his prophet. That's the same thing for us today. Decisions, life and death decisions. Are we trusting in God? For, for Hezekiah, he's, he's looking at this. He hears the word from God. He's, he has to be thinking, is God truly stronger? Will God truly keep his promise? Will God really deliver as he says he would? Deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrian army? Is that, you know, is that what's really going to happen? And we have to ask the same question, right, when the enemy comes against us. Is God really stronger? Is God really more satisfying of greater treasure than all the other so-called gods we're trusting in? We're running to, we're clinging to. Will God keep his promise? Family, that's stuff, we, we battle with that all the time, don't we? Part of the problem is that we face is we have that flesh, the Bible calls the flesh, that part of us that, that still struggles and wants to live independently of God and wants to do our own thing. But we also have the world. And the opposition of those around us who oppose our God, who oppose our faith. And we talk about the world, the opposition of the world against us. We're talking about the thoughts and the beliefs and the systems that oppose God. The the, the beliefs and the ideas and, and the way in which the world works that opposes the living God, the living word. It's a worldly system that opposes God. And here you see not only a king who's opposing God, but what you see here going on, what I want to talk to you about for a minute here, I think it's a good time to talk about this, is an opposing worldview. Maybe you don't think about worldviews, but you should. It's very important. What is a worldview? A worldview, according to the dictionary, is an overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world, okay? Okay? So simply put, a worldview is the perspective in which we view and understand the world in which we live. A biblical worldview, though, is a world that we see, we see the world through, through, um, through the lens of Scripture, if I could say it really clearly. The, the, the Word of God informs the way we think. The Word of God informs the way we act. It, the Word of God reflects what we really believe truth to be, reality to be, through the scriptures. So the Assyrian king is looking around. He's saying, look, I, I've done all this. My, my, I have a mighty, powerful army. I've destroyed multiple nations. And I am the best thing on the earth, right? I'm the ultimate fighting machine. I am the ultimate voice. I am the, I am the definitive voice, the ultimate say of what's real and not real, what's deceptive, what's truth, what's falsehood, what's reality. That, that's King Sennacherib from Assyria saying. And here's God's prophet. And here's God's king who looks beyond what is seen to the unseen, who believe, as Hebrews tells us, that genuine faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 4, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our worldview, looking at the same circumstances, our worldview are things like there is one true and living God. That God himself, creator of the universe, has spoken. He's spoken through creation and providence, prophets and apostles, history, and finally spoken completely and, and, and finally and thoroughly through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1. We believe that God is Lord and reigning ruler of the universe, rules over all things for his glory. 
That's our reality. He displays his perfection in all that he does. That creation itself will worship their creator. That's the worldview we see. And the scripture says to have another worldview and not to give God his glory, not to give God his right and due is called idolatry. But to think rightly about God, John tells us, is eternality, eternity. So family, when we're confronted with fear, intimidation, even when we face impossible situations, the children of God has that biblical worldview that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's the almighty Lord of all creation. God is holy. God is transcendent. God is purposeful. God provides and preserves his creation. He's working all things out according to his plans and purposes for all humanity. That's our view. One king sees it one way. The other king sees it through scripture. And as Hezekiah is now before the Lord, as he sees and needs to recognize the holiness of God, what does he do? He prays. Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, went to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, verse 18, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. They're not denying it. And have cast their gods, small g, into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, verse 20, O Lord, our God, save us. Save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Have you ever gotten devastating news? I I mean devastating news. News that just rocked you back. Heart sank. Soul numb. I think I shared the story once before. I couldn't find it, but I'm pretty sure I did. One of our daughters was visiting overseas, thousands of miles away in, in Holland, visiting a friend during college. One morning, my doorbell rang, and it was the father of the girl which my daughter was visiting. And he wanted to talk to me. He wanted, he, daughter, you know, dad to dad, and told me that my daughter was missing. The girls went out one night, knew and knew where she was. Holland, daughter was missing. Let me tell you, that was a heart stopper right there. Not much I could do. Started, just closed the door, went up in my bedroom, got on my face and prayed. What am I going to do? And I began to pray. Things did work out, she was fine. But what else was I going to do? Hezekiah gets this, he's like, it's over, man. He gets his message in writing, he gets a letter, and immediately goes to the house of the Lord. Gets on his face before God, seeking the presence of God. And in a symbolic measure, he opens the scroll up before the Lord. It's not like God, you know, hold on, I know you can't see it. Let me just open it so you can read it. Can you see it now? That's not what it was. Right? It's a gesture of shock and outrage. He lays this before the Lord, and he prays. Hezekiah knows that God is his only hope. And he begins to pray. And he, and, he, and he begins with this invocation about who God is. And Jesus taught us the same way, right? Pray this way. Hallowed be thy name. That's kind of the same thing. Recognizing God is glorious. God is majestic. God is holy. This invocation kind of sets the stage for his request. And he first acknowledges who God is. His, his, his soul, uh, uh, his character. His distinctiveness, that's where he begins. And we know that Sennacherib is not going to be defeated simply because God's people are going to rise up. No, they needed intervention. And that God was going to defeat the Assyrian army because he, they blasphemed him. And look what Isaiah, look what Hezekiah, excuse me, Hezekiah identifies the Lord in this invocation. Look at five things real quick. Number one, he calls him the Lord of hosts. 
Lord, host, Lord, Yahweh, Almighty, the Lord Almighty, name of covenant, God's covenant name, a name of redemption, the one who is the, the military commander of the host of heaven, Lord of hosts. Number two, he called him the God of Israel. Why that? Because he's not the God of the Assyrians, as much as the Assyrians think he's on his side. They're not. God is not on their side. God of Israel, covenant people, we belong to you, not the Assyrians. Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. That may sound strange to you, but in the Holy of Holies, on the Ark of the Covenant, there were, there were winged, golden-winged figures where the glory of God would come down. The Shekinah glory would rest on the mercy seat. And what, what Hezekiah is saying, Lord, you're dwelling with us. You're reigning and you're ruling. And you are with your people, the one that are, that are being attacked. You are among us. You are present. Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Number four, you are God alone. Of all the kingdoms of the world, you have dominion and authority and sovereignty over the world. And number five, look what he says. You've made heaven and earth. This is your domain. You have created this. You're powerful enough to guide all of creation. You're the creator with the creation. So you're the Lord of hosts. You're the God of Israel, recognizing redemption and covenant. Enthroned, you're with us in your presence. You're the sovereign one, and you have made heaven and earth. Listen, that wasn't just an acknowledgement of who God is, although it is. That would be an encouragement to Hezekiah. That should be an encouragement to us when we pray. We don't just pray and acknowledge who God is just for fun. We open prayer that way because we recognize who God is. To be encouraged that that's our God. That's our Father in heaven. Now, that's a worldview. (laughs) That's a worldview that the king of Assyria didn't have. Hezekiah did. Now, Let me ask this question. Don't raise your hand. Just think. Do you think Hezekiah didn't know anything that until that day? Do you think Hezekiah is like, oh, this is the God? Like the first time he's ever heard that about God? I don't think so. I don't think so. We already know he made this alliance with with Egypt. He, He made some poor decisions. He still knew this. What happened? He wasn't living it. He wasn't appropriating the truth of who God is in his life. Now, before we judge, let's relate. How much pain and suffering have we gone through? How much pain and suffering have we gone through and anguish if we didn't just start out with recognizing who God is, right? Instead of in the end. But now he's broken. We find ourselves with no place else to turn. He's completely broken, and he looks to the God who rules the universe for help. And in verses 17 through 19, we find his first request. Invocation, request. Five imperative verbs, to hear, to listen, to see, and hope that God will respond to the mockery against them. He's the living God, he says, right? False idols, they got eyes, they got plastic eyes, or wood eyes, or stone eyes, and ears. They can't hear, and they can't see, but you're the living God. You can truly hear, and you can truly see. That's what he says. And his concern, if you notice Hezekiah's prayer, is really not first and foremost about him or even the people that he serves, that he's king over. His primary concern is the glory of God. Hezekiah's like, look, Lord, this ain't about me. This is a direct attack against you. Don't let this letter go unanswered, Lord. We know what the king of Assyria has done, verse 18. Laid waste the nations. We know, verse 19, they cast their gods, these idols, into the fires when they destroyed the nations. But you're the living God who is not dependent upon his creatures. Actually, your creatures derive life from you. Again, two very different worldviews. Everyone agrees, both kings agree, that this is what Assyria has done. No one's denying it. Sennacherib thought God, Judah's God, was no different from the lifeless gods of wood and stone. Wood and stone. He's not going to defend Jerusalem. That was his view. That's, he saw the world working that way. Hezekiah, the man of faith, knows that the living God who rules the world 
is totally different from all the lifeless gods of the nation and is very capable of keeping his promise and doing what he said he was going to do. Two worldviews. The second request is verse 20. Save us from his hand. Now again, not from me. Look what it says. Verse 20. So that others may know that you alone are the true and living God. Hezekiah believes that when God intervenes, miraculously, his divine act of salvation, delivering Jerusalem from Sennacherib's huge army, it would reveal to the world the, 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 the distinctiveness and the characteristic and the beauty and glory of God himself. That's how we pray, right? That's how we should pray. We need to pray that, that others will see in us living proof that God saves sinners. The, the unselfish prayer that God will get glory, he will get the honor, for its primary purpose for him is to, is, and for us is to bring God glory. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Listen, God wants to display his glory, his infinite worth, incalculable value in our salvation to the world. And when his glory becomes our passion, when his glory becomes our passion and purpose, it's, we're, not, we're not deprived or, or, or we're being diminished from anything that God has created. It's actually the opposite. Because when, when God's glory and our salvation becomes our passion and purpose, we are seen treasuring him, his mercy and his grace and his goodness. We're, we're enjoying the beauty and the presence and the satisfaction of God. It's what our hearts long for. John Piper's famous quote, God is most glorified in us. God is most glorified in us, seen as the greatest treasure of infinite worth. God is most glorified in us when, when we are most what? Satisfied in him. Hezekiah, finally you see what Isaiah has been saying. You don't, you don't need human power. You don't need to run to Egypt. What you need is God. He has revealed himself to us. Not to serve our wills, but to defend his glory as we serve him. Have you come to that place? Family, have we, have we come to that place that we can now see how the God-centeredness of God is good for us, is good for you? It shows us not only how great and glorious and precious God is, but it also tells us that our unrighteousness, our sin, is irrelevant to God's willingness to save us. It's not about you. It's about him. He doesn't give us what we deserve, not because of you. He gives us what we don't deserve because of him. Because of him. So he can prove and show the world his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his wonderful son, the Savior. So with the Apostle Paul, we could say it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether life or death, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the purpose. That's the glory. Now response. God responds. Hezekiah's faith opens the door for him to speak, and now God will speak. Verses 21 through 35. Let's read that. When Hezekiah, excuse me, when, then Isaiah, I gotta get them right, right? Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, we just saw that, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my feet all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old 
what now I bring to pass, what you should have, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn of strength and dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Verse 30. And this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs from that? Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. Out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. (laughs) God, man, prays to God for God's glory to be revealed. And God responds by speaking to him through the prophet. Because he had faithfully prayed. The word of God comes to the king through the prophet, and he promised him first thing that he will judge those who blaspheme and mock him in verses 20 through, 21 through 29. And we see this. Look at verse 22. God's going to judge. In 22, he begins by talking about how. The God who rules, rules over Sennacherib. It's not the other way around. There will come a day, he says, when Jerusalem, now a helpless virgin, before a boastful king, will mock her. In other words, there's going to be a reversal of roles. Jerusalem will look at their enemy and see them and wag their head toward them. In verse 23, we could sum it up. As I'm reading this through and I'm thinking this through, you look at verse 23 and following, and it's almost as if God is saying, you talking to me? <laughs> you, you talking to me? Do you know who I am? What I have done to other nations? My limitless power at my disposal? And verses 20 through 25, 24 through 25, God goes on to saying like, do you think you're great? <laughs> do you mock me? Do you, do you think you have done all this by your own strength? Really, by your own power? Uh, mentioning of landscaping and, and heights of mountain and deserts and rivers. It's just, it's just a boastful way that Sennacherib is saying, look how great I am. And his mocking and his boastful pridefulness has been made very clear. Verses 26 through 29, we learn the truth. The, the real worldview. Who the one who's really sovereign over the world. All that you have, God says, is according to my plans and it's my purposes. Right? I mean, everyone agrees, yes, this is what happened. But not everybody agrees on the cause and the effects of what took place. Sennacherib thought, I'm great. Look at all I've done. My plans, my power. And God said, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. And actually, we see this in our text, what we say here all the time. You have have human responsibility, and you have God's sovereignty side by side throughout all of Scripture. And what we see here is Hezekiah goes before the Lord and does what he's supposed to do, right? So prayer matters. And we have Hezekiah praying before the Lord, save us, deliver us, act on on behalf of your glory and your honor. We we, we see that. And then God goes, yeah, but you know what? I'm still sovereign. Actually, the Assyrian army is just an instrument. From from, From days of old, carrying out the purposes and plans that I have set before him. This victory after victory, this conquering of lands, really, God says, I planned it, I purposed it, I accomplished it. You're really just carrying out my eternal plan. (laughs) Verse 28 even says that God knows every single moment and movement of life. I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out and coming in. Nothing is hidden from God. The verb know implies personal knowledge. God foreordained. For determined all that the Assyrians will do, no surprise. 
And then in verse 29, God takes this figurative language associated with controlling animals, particularly horses, and uses it to teach the Assyrian army what's going to happen to them. I read this week that according to some of the historical records, the Assyrians would conquer a land and they would put hooks in the jaws of the, of the people that they were carrying off into exile and they would chain them and they would lead them out from their nation and deport them or bring them back as slaves. And God now says, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to put my nose hook in you my mouth bridle in you. I will subdue, tame, and treat you as a prisoner and carry you away. God will judge the blasphemer. And God will also save his remnant, verses 30 through, 30 through 32. Isaiah now, I, just so you know, in, in verse 30, let me go there too, there's a change. So God is speaking about Sennacherib and Assyria up to verse 29. In verse 30, he turns now to Hezekiah. He's speaking to Israel. In verse 29, in verse 30, he's speaking to Hezekiah. He's, he's, he's no longer threatening what's going to take place with the enemy. He now wants to comfort the king. And he says, there's going to come a time, and he's using agriculture, where you'll plant. And you'll only get what, that in which you started and what would fell uh, uh, during the planting. Seed would fall to the ground and, and stuff would, would, would grow. Most commentators think that the Assyrian army attacked him during the harvest time. And God's saying, there's going to come a time in the third year that there'll be a harvest and, and, and that you will be back to doing what you're supposed to be doing and harvesting and growing and, and eating the fruit of your land. It's going to take place. Look what he says. Why? For the zeal of the Lord will do it. The zeal of the Lord will do it. A wholehearted commitment to God. The zeal of the Lord. God will judge God will save, and God will deliver. Verses 33 through 35. God declares the king of Assyria will not come into the city. Not a single thing will be launched. You're going to go home the way you came. God will deliver for his own sake. Look what it says, for his own sake. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord of it concerning, let me put that up here. I, mean, I think I have it for you. Yeah. Verse 33. Therefore, the, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, shall not come to the city, shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a seal to mount again. By the way he came, he shall return. I'll defend the city. I'll save it. Why? For my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. For my own glory, for my own character, my own faithfulness, I will save it. And that's exactly what God is doing. But he also says he's going to save it for, why? For David. For the covenant that he made with David. You see, if Judah disappears, the, cop, the, the, the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel that a king would come in the line of David, sit on the eternal throne, is done. But God's going to keep his promise, and that king is going to come, and his name is Jesus. So God says, I'm going to do it for my own glory. I'm going to do it for my own sake. But I'm going to do it because of the promise I made to David. I'm going to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sit on the throne forever. Your kingdom, Sennacherib, will not last. My kingdom will. God will show that. His name is Jesus. That's why God, <laughs> that's why God puts up with us. That's why God is patient with us. It's because of Jesus. Because the promise he made about Jesus. Because of the gospel. Because God is loving and patient and kind because of Jesus. He's committed to us because of Christ. Deliverance of Zion promised to Hezekiah is just a pattern. It's just a pattern of what Christ, God will do and has done through Christ. Through Christ. So God will judge. God will save. God will deliver. And now God will triumph to close. Verse 36 through 38. Let me read that. This is the, 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 the climax resolution, right? And resolution. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god Adramelech and Sharazer, imagine that, his son struck him down with the sword. 
they escaped. After they escaped into the land of Ararat, the Esradan, his son reigned in his place. <sighs> this very short closing section shows us God's intervention in a powerful, powerful way. The fate of the Assyrians are in the hand of God. He will fulfill his promise. 185,000 people dead in an instant. Can you imagine the fear that came upon the Assyrian nation when they wake up? Can you imagine being one of the ones that didn't die and you wake up and you see your comrades and, and all the fellow soldiers dead? 185,000. And there is Sennacherib on his way back home, defeated. No soldiers, very little soldiers. Prophecy of God come true. You're going to go home. And now we see also the prophecy that you will die by the sword as he is assassinated. Hezekiah goes into the idle place of worship to find help, and he gets murdered. Hezekiah goes in and finds help, and God helps him. Excuse me. He goes into the temple of the Lord, the presence of the living God, and he cries out to God, and God answers his prayer, and God delivers them. Not Sennacherib. He goes into the house of his idol, and he gets murdered. The king who mocked the one true and living God dies in the temple of the God that in which he worships. The one who says, I have the ability to, to conquer all the nations can't even stop his own two sons from killing him on the spot. So let me end this way. Look at verse 32 again with me. Verse 32, look what it says. The zeal of the Lord will do it. Twice in Isaiah we see the zeal of the Lord will do it. Twice. Chapter 9 and here in chapter 32. In chapter 9, when it talks about the zeal of the Lord will do it, it says, For to us the child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders. You know the verse. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Government will be upon his shoulders. The throne of his David he will establish forever, uphold with justice and righteousness forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The narrative shows us the amazing salvation work of God, both in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, and the deliverance. The Lord of hosts will do this. Family, do you see this whole narrative really points to the Messiah, the work of Christ, the remnant who will be saved, the salvation of God is much greater worth and of value than an army battle going on in Judah. The arch enemy, Satan himself, sin itself will be destroyed. That's our hope. And although, you know what? Not every, you, you know this you not every single time we pray God deliver us, he's going to do that in this world. We have enemies against us. We have situations that we don't get out of. We have circumstances that we just have to work through. But I will tell you this. I will tell you this. God, in faith, we believe that God provides salvation. That he alone provides a way out of the consequences of our sin, our own mocking, our own rebellion, our own prideful assertion that we could be our own saviors. It may not be God's sovereign plan to deliver us from circumstances and troubles or even the world against us, but it is in faith promised that God has provided, God will keep his promise in the perfect life of Jesus, in the substitutionary death, his resurrection from the grave, the enemy, Satan, sin, and death are defeated. We are delivered. That's what this points to. As the band comes up, let me read one passage from, to you from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said this. Do not fear. Now listen. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is Jesus talking about? Jesus is speaking about God, who in some ways, if you're not a Christ follower, have not repented of your sin, is the greatest enemy. Why? Because God has the power to both destroy the soul and body in hell. Maybe you never heard that before. This table represents the deliverance of God, that God will judge, God judge sin. 
All sin will be accounted for either on the cross, on back of Jesus, or you and I in eternity in hell. God will save us. That's what this table's for. That God gave us his son who died a grueling death, whose blood was shed in our place. God will deliver us. He promises that in Christ, he will transfer us from the, from the, from the domain of darkness, set us free from the domain of darkness, and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And God will triumph in the end. God will triumph in the end. That's what this table's all about. John Piper, we have John Piper Day, so let's add one more quote. We'll close. John Piper, speaking of what Jesus just said about fearing him who throws both body and, and, and soul into hell, said this. Through faith in Christ, though that the threat has been cast aside forever, for us as believers, the biggest, scariest, most intimidating, long-lasting terror was turned away and destroyed. The crisis has been averted. The distress has passed. The guilt removed. The execution canceled. The God of the universe satisfied and vindicated. So we no longer need to fear. The table that we are about to joy together is a picture of deliverance and salvation. The bread, the cup, the body, the blood that was shed. If you're a Christ follower, we invite you to come up and get, in just a moment, to get the elements. If you're not a Christ follower you're here, that's great. We love you. We're glad you're here. We'll talk to you and pray for you. But this table is just for followers of Christ. Doesn't matter what church you belong to. If you're a devoted follower of Christ, this table's for you. The band's going to play. We're going to spend some time in prayer. We're going to spend some time confessing our sins. What fears have been been, been, been ravishing your heart? And what ways have you not had this, this biblical, scriptural worldview? What ways have you been brought into uh, th- this lie of the enemy? We're going to repent and, and turn from that way, trust the Lord, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. The band's going to play. If you come down the two end aisles, that'd be great, and come up and hold on to your element, and then I'm going to come up and lead us through uh, taking it together. Father, thank you for this story, this narrative. Um, it shows us your hand moved mightily in those days. Uh, it reminds us today that you are sovereign, um, Lord, that you provide for your people. And Lord, most of all, you provide salvation from our sin, from the consequences of sin, which is your wrath and eternity and hell away from you. Lord, we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we believe that you have provided a way of escape. You have, divide, you have provided salvation and deliverance, and you will triumph in the end. So, Father, whatever we're going through today, we pray as we, we sing this next song, you would speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. Show us our sin, but show us our Savior. And that, Lord, together we will uh, pray well, we will repent well, and, Lord, we will celebrate well your provision for us. That no matter what happens in this world, no matter what may, may be thrown at us, Lord, we, are, we trust you. And we know that you have provided and you keep your promises in Christ. All your promises are yes in him. So, Lord, help us, we pray, as we continue to worship you, as we take communion together. In Jesus' good name, amen.